I, I, I really hope that people that work in these environments can show up with a lot of gratitude and, and, and focus on the positive things and, and kind of, kind of push things forward there. And I think it's unfortunately a byproduct of being a designer and you're kind of a critical eye on things and the critical eye is too, is easy. Okay. It's easy to look at someone and isolate the aspects of them that are weak or look at a design and say, what's bad about it. The art is saying the thing that no one is seeing and saying the positive and taking, taking what you're, is in front of you and making it a little bit better and doing it in a way that uplifts those around you and motivates those around you to continue forward on things. Welcome to The Creative Brief. Today, my guest is the great and powerful Mark Himian. I thought I would talk to him about YouTube and Google and Facebook and Design Inc. and Hodinkee. I thought I'd talk to him about his art and his amazing ocean paintings. But what we ended up talking about was so much more. I'm excited about this conversation because it really opens the door for the types of discussions we can have on this podcast. I'm so excited for you to listen. I'm Brian Athey, and this is The Creative Brief. So uh, it'll just be like people are jumping into a conversation with us. Okay, great. Welcome, people. Welcome, people. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Thanks Mark. What's up, man? <laughs> How are I you? Appreciate, appreciate that welcome. You're welcome. Man, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to have you. And I feel like I'm, I'm getting used to uh, your setup already. First off, it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, but second off, uh, we've got the first continuity camera that is is tracking you. And I like, we're going to see how much you move in this podcast. I think I move a lot. I'm nervous. I'll try to stay still. Um, you are in my sound room. If I lean back, you can see instruments everywhere. I think that um, this should like, this is how I want my setup to be. I want to be able to move around and move people around. see what's going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful to be here. Hey, this is, um, it's funny. I did a little Twitter space last night and it was really fun. I forgot how fun it is to talk to people and connect and share stories and how invigorating it is. So grateful for the opportunity, man. Stoked to be here and just, yeah, let's have a, let's have a conversation. We can talk was, about whatever you want, man. I, I jumped into spaces and I, I guess I jumped in without the proper context. I saw mm -hmm. that you were sort of in this back and forth with what you thought was like an AI. Yeah. I thought Twitter. he was a fake, not real human. I thought, someone had dug up a persona from early Apple history and had been feeding it information. And I thought that the tweets and the articles that this individual had created this kind of, you know, he called himself the protege of Steve Jobs. And I was talking about Aqua, the Aqua interface and all these things that were pretty legendary in the early 2000s. And so I sent a tweet out to him. I said, look, if you're real, let's like, let's have a space. Let's talk. I'd love to meet you. Turns out he's very real. It's a very real person. We, <laughs> His name's 25. Michael. He was he was at Apple from like 99 to... 99 to 2005. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. I think he... You Actually know, people, good buddies with Steve Jobs. Well, he never... You know, the, you got to listen to the... It's very interesting. You have to listen to the podcast. He doesn't ever... He never worked directly with Steve Jobs, but he worked on stuff that Steve Jobs would approve. And so I encourage people to go listen to it. It's one of these things where I think we'll be talking about it for a long time and kind of pulling out what's maybe exaggerated, what's real, but he certainly is a person 
who's real, who was associated and worked at Apple from 99 to 2005. Under what capacity? I'm not sure. I'm still not sure. I le- I left that and I'm not sure. Was he a designer? Was he an engineer? Was right. he a prototyper? W- was he a manager? <laughs> I, I kind of don't know. But there. there was a softness to the interview that I didn't want to like press too hard. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, well, I think it's a long time he, ago. Mm-hmm. You kind of came at him like he was a robot at, you know, in the introduction. And then you said that you kind of connected with him afterwards and you, you set it up last night. Like, this is actually like a really sweet, genuine human. Yeah, We're gonna sweet have a guy, lovely guy. His wife was in the audience. You know, he shared a lot of personal things. And at the end there was Q&A and people were kind of sharing their, it's funny, Apple has such nostalgia. Apple, right. people, designers especially, they look to Apple as kind of their, their flagship of what it means to be a designer. I think they people have fantasies of being Johnny Ives and running in with a design to Steve Jobs. I'm like, look what I made, Steve. Bless me. You know, the the church of Steve. Little do they know, I don't think working for Steve Jobs would be that fun. I think it'd be really, really hard. Wouldn't don't you? Can you imagine? I, I like uh, he he drove the, his team so intensely. Yeah, the Walter Isaacson yeah, book, the uh the movie that I think Aaron Sorkin was involved with it. Both of those paint him as um, a, a, a bit of a just aggressive slave driver. I mean, like he worked his people until they were the best. He, he ground them into diamonds, you know? I used to live in Mountain View and I took a mm-hmm. woodworking class from this really lovely man named Philip Roybal. You can look him up. He was the VP of marketing in the early 80s at Apple. And he tells a story, I guess in... When did they reveal the Mac, the Macintosh? Was it 1984, I think, or something like that? I think so. They revealed it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They revealed it in the U.S. Yeah, that woman who throws the hammer, the very classic 1984, you know, Orwellian thing. And Philip, you know, he's retired, so he's teaching woodworking. I don't know who he is. He's teaching me how to, you know, plane wood and stuff. And And I said, tell me a Steve Jobs story. And he goes, I got one for you. We just released this in the, the Mac in, the, in 84 in the U.S. Immediately behind, behind that, we had to go to the U.K. and launch it in Europe. And my team staged a coup. A coup. And they said, tell Steve we're not working anymore. We're done. We're so burned out. We're so exhausted. And he went to Phil. And or Phil went to Steve and said, Steve, you know, I uh, the team's needs a break. We're working too hard. We're too tired. And apparently Steve looks at him and he says, you know, Philip, why no one ever does anything great. He goes, no, Steve, because no one ever asked him to. And he just walked off. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of the story. The, and- the, the Marcus Aurelius of our time. That guy was, I, I don't know what he tapped into. The story is that it was psychedelics early in his career. Like he sort of had these profound experiences and then saw the world completely differently. You know, that whole quote about, um, you know, the world is just a series of rules and constraints that other people have invented. Uh, yeah, that's, that was always his mentality. And apparently he came, he came to those realizations through some of these psychedelic experiences, but it seems like he, he tapped into something that he had access to greatness. I don't know if there's any doubt in, in my, or anybody's mind, he had access to something that most people don't have access to, but being able to lead these, what's that? The disillusion of the ego is what happens with with psychedelic heavy psychedelic trips. And he was very famous for saying, this world around you was created by other people. You can create it. 
There are no rules. There are. And I think the ego is one of these things that creates limiting beliefs around us. I mean, if I were to invite you for a moment to close your eyes and just for a minute, take away your name, Brian, take away the idea that you're a man, take an idea that you're a podcaster, you're a designer, your father, husband, take all that away. And if those listening, I'd invite you to do the same thing. And then what is left? Your gender's gone, your name's gone, all these things that create belief systems. What's left is your consciousness and your soul. You can open, you can, we can open our eyes again. But it's interesting to think about people as not people, but as consciousness. And if Steve did psychedelics, which I, you know, he talks about publicly, and it opened up this idea that we are all have you know, infinite capacity to do anything and shape the world around us, then it gives you that, you know, people would say he had the reality distortion, right? It gives you that confidence, that power to literally shape the world around you, especially if you believe that you are made of the same essence and the same matter. And um, it's a very powerful point of view. I don't think it's, I don't think it's cocky. I don't think it's egotistical. I think it's almost, it's almost the third revolution of religion. And sorry for going on a bit of a tangent, but initially we had, (laughs) we had Catholicism that said, if you want to talk to God, you got to go through the priest. And then sometime later we had the reformation. We had, you know, Martin Luther and other people said, you know what? No, you don't need to go through a priest. You can go right to God. What's happening now is what I think is like religion 3.0, which is you are God. Does that make sense? So you go for so in the Eckhart Tolle sense, it does. Like I've 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 read the Power of Now as like a good example of that, and it's not a um, hyperbolic statement, and it's it's definitely not a ego inflating statement. When you say you are God, you are part of everything, the eternal and the infinite, and that eternal and infinite is something that you can access every day. And most people put layers on top of labels, titles, rules, regulations, all these things. And it's, it creates a a whole society of stressed out materialism. A really good, let's go a really specific example. Your father, right? To three. Okay, great. I am two. I have three kids. Being a father has a certain amount of rules associated with it. One of those rules might be you should tuck your kids into bed every night, mm-hmm. right? Or you should sit around the dinner table with them or you should, you know, send them on to school. But let's take the tuck them into dinner example or tuck them, tuck them into dinner, tuck them into bed. As a father, if you don't tuck your kids into bed tonight or tomorrow night, and let's say you go two weeks because you're on a business trip or something, whatever, whatever the reason is, because you have a belief that you should be a father and a father should behave in a certain way, what, what can happen is if you don't believe in that certain way, you start feeling guilty. You start feeling shame, like, shit, I'm not a good dad because I'm not kissing my kids and hugging them goodnight, which, by the way, might be true. However, from like a philosophical perspective, that belief system can cause suffering and can cause pain. So I think it's important to kind of like look at, look at all these labels we put on ourselves and be comfortable with sometimes removing those because I could go the other side and say, you're an entrepreneur, you're a podcaster, you're a visionary, you're um, a thought leader. And in those two weeks, oh my God, you, you, let's say you went on a two week book tour, you released a book and you touched thousands of people's lives from that belief system. You're amazing and you're helping and you're doing a great, you know, you're doing a great thing. And I think that that is the cause of, of so much 
kind of like, you know, when people have kind of glitches in the matrix inside their bodies and they don't feel very good, it's primarily because of these limiting belief systems that they have. Um, and so I think one of the coolest things about being a creative person or designer is if you can figure out how to separate yourself from your limiting beliefs and sit in presence with the thing that you're making at this time and, you know, remove all your bias, which is really hard. I do think you can innovate and create some beautiful, beautiful things. Sorry to go on a total tangent. We can wrap it back. But no, I love that. Well, so I thought, you know, just about framing folks and, and I hate to jump into framing right after we had that profound discussion, but I do want to give some context as, into at least who you are to my audience and who you are to me. Um, I first met you at Dan Petty's Epicurrence back in 2019, but mm -hmm. I'd also known you, known of you for years before that. And it's because you are, here's kind of how I see you, Mark. I, you know, Rick Rubin? Sure. Yeah. Rick Rubin, read, right? Read his book. Rick, yeah, he's great. Rick Rubin, the, the creative act. Rick Rubin has got his Beastie Boys and he's got Jay-Z and so many others. But I've always seen Mark Himian as, you know, he's got his YouTube and his Google experience and his Hodinkee experience. He's got this founder, all these founder stories, and he's done all these things. But what I've watched you evolve into is more of a facilitator and an artist. And, you know, so many, so many questions that I want to ask you about that journey, but can you, can you set up just a little bit about your yeah, early sure, career journey, sure. kind of where, where you started? Yeah, thanks. I got married in 1998 in college and my, I was studying accounting at BYU. I grew up Mormon. And during that accounting degree, there was an information systems track you could take and that introduced me to databases and PeopleSoft and Oracle and all these kinds of things. And the idea was graduate college. I did an internship at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was going to go to like monitor or Bain, be a business consultant, primarily because my motivation at the time was to be a good husband and to make money. You know, I got married when I was 21, 22. And so my, yeah. And, and, and so BYU has a pretty legendary accounting information systems program and I thought for sure this is what I was doing. I was working at a startup in college, a speech recognition company. I was writing JavaScript and doing design and whatnot. And so I started out, I've always done design. You know, I had a computer when I was a kid, 286 that my dad bought and hacked around on that thing and played Return to Zork and Hitchhiker's Guide and all the classics. Right. And so when I, when I graduated college, I got an offer to go work in New York at Anderson Consulting. And I turned it down and I stayed at the startup I was with in Utah and we went public and I made $8,000 and I was so happy. I was so stoked. I put a down ready, payment on 125. Ready yeah. Ready to retire. Bought a house, $125,000 house. And we set up in Utah six, uh, um, six months later, uh, on September 11th, 2001, the world changed. Uh, this was on the back heels of a dot-com crash. I lost my job. I went without pay for six months. And I sat there with 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 my wife and a little baby that I just had. She was one month old. She was born a month before September 11th. I just like, well, shoot, I got to make money. And a friend of mine said, you should go run hospitals in California. So we packed our bags up, went to California, and I was a hospital administrator. <laughs> in, in Northern California or, or Southern California? Southern for, California. I lasted for four months 
because of the that's nature a job of it. right there. That's a it's job, a tough job. Man. It's a tough job. But I thought the internet was dead. Okay. I thought in sure. 2001, pets.com, the whole situation was dead, was gone. You and everybody else. Yeah. It was brutal. And I was like, I don't, so I started welding on the side. I got a job as a welder and I just, and then I started doing a little freelance and started picking up some work just as, you know, logos, whatever, little websites, et cetera. And so a long story short, I eventually found my way to making software again, starting a company with some brothers named Design, or some two brothers, a company called Design by Humans, T-Fury. This led to some notoriety, I guess. The, those companies kind of took off, led me to dig.com, built a thing at night called Flick, which is a movie review based on Twitter. So that got acquired by YouTube. And I would say like my Silicon Valley career didn't really start till Dig in YouTube, like 2008 to 2010. And then from there, once you're up in the valley, it's really an incredible, it's, an, it's a magical place. You can get involved in whatever you want to, right? And so yeah. from that- Especially met, at that time. Yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful time. Um, developed a relationship with Kevin Rose. We left Google, raised some money. We, what we eventually would, we would make a bunch of little apps. One was about wristwatches, turned into us merging with Hodinkee raising more money. Kevin went to New York. Anyway, it's a long, long story, but for, for, for a good 15, 20 years there was involved with a lot of different companies, started one of my own called Design Inc. too, and um, was known as a designer and a person who like could energize uh, ideas. I don't know. People would come to me to like, you know, whether it was like at YouTube, it was kind of like starting YouTube TV had gotten off the ground a little bit, but the team, had changed a lot. And so, you know, I got involved and we kind of built that thing up from scratch. I think the team's massive now, like 700 people, but at the time it was like mm. 20 of us. So I don't know, man. And, I, and, it, and, it, and it's not any, I don't, I don't want to take credit for any particular talent. I really think it's timing. There's so many incredible designers now, you know, if you were, if they were in those positions, they would have gotten to touch a lot of these early things, early versions of the first iOS app, first Android app at YouTube, YouTube first YouTube redesign, even kind of before material even hit, you know, Google, when I joined Google in 2011, friends made fun of me. They're like, why are you going? There's no design there. That's not cool. You should go to like Nike or something cool. It's not the okay. case now, but at the time it was kind of like not, not, impressive <laughs> as a designer. Well, I mean, kind of, not, not of course, even in 2011, it seemed like Google was, was where you would want to be, but I understand the, maybe the, it doesn't live up to the design expectations. Not as a, yeah. I mean, I mean, I worked at Oakley for a little bit too. Oakley at least was cool. You know, we had athletes and like campaign shoots and like it had an edge to it. That was also the time period when brand designers felt like superior there was nothing called product design yet. It was like web development and web oh, design. Yeah. And so at the time, these brand designers like kind of snubbed their nose at software designers. Just like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that cool. And in fact, I remember a conversation at YouTube where the native app, Apple used to do the native app on, on, on the iPhone and they stopped doing that. And we had to scramble to make an iOS app. And I remember meetings where people were like, yeah, but like, are people really going to watch videos on their phones? Like we have m.youtube. We have a responsive site. That should be good enough. Should we really invest time? And you don't, you know, it's a valid, it's a valid yeah. <laughs> thought. Um, yeah, it's curiosity at least. It's hard. I mean, you, 
everybody is going to Monday morning quarterback and say like, how could you not predict it? But at the time, yeah. I mean, even responsive design wasn't a thing. You really did have to think about like, you know, are we going to build something extra? Are we going to take the extra yeah. time to do? We had a we had a camera app where if you held it in pro, uh, profile version, it came. It wouldn't let you shoot. It would say, "Please rotate your camera landscape," because of the bias of like vertical video is stupid. You know, like we had there was that bias inside of YouTube at the time. Does that make that sense? Really is like, a new thing, I think it's a new thing that that vertical video has has taken off as much as it has. It's almost yeah. a new yeah. format. Like I would, would only, be, I, I, only I would not be surprised if a TV came out, you know, if, if Sony made the new frame TV as a, Oh yeah. If, can you, I mean, tw 10 years ago, if you told someone that now everything is vertical video, basically everyone's shooting up and down like this, people would roll over. They're like, that's crazy. That's not, we, how do you get the 16 by nine, the beautiful cinematic? No, it doesn't make any sense. But, um, I, I've always had a hard time describing like my my job and like what I've done because I feel like a little bit like dark matter, <laughs> which is in the universe and it measures things. It's out there, but it's hard to quantify. Um, it's hard to quantify ideas. It's hard to quantify energy. It's hard to quantify. A, I, I think I have a personality type that connects a lot of different people together. And I don't know what that's worth. And I don't know how to put that in a portfolio. I also don't know how to speak to like, here's an idea and let's like, and somehow get the right people together and motivate with, with mock-ups and design, you know, get it, get it forward. And I don't, you know, designers have the ability to really inspire people with the right, with the right ideas, the right presentation, you know, and uh, it's a, it's kind of a superpower and I'm grateful AI is coming around to give more people that, that superpower. It is a superpower in the sense that, you know, some of the most prolific and amazing designers that I know have a really hard time being an advocate for themselves. They have a hard time sharing, having the conversations, have a hard time networking. Uh, there is a lot more into a lot more that goes into getting an idea all the way to launch besides making it look perfect because there's so much salesmanship and dealing with dynamics and striking at the right time. And I feel like that's like, it's, it's a wisdom. Um, at beginning it might be instinct, but I'm, I'm sure you would say it's, it's wisdom at this point, you've got enough experience that that instinct has been honed and refined. It's very hard to put that on a resume, very hard to get that in a portfolio. I, and instead. I, and I, and listen, Brian, I struggle with this to, to this day. It's really hard to, um, ask the right amount of money for your worth. It's really hard to know your self-worth. It's really hard to know your value. And then it's hard not to tip over the other side and, and ask for too much money or be too, too grabby on things. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to really be a taker. At a certain point, uh, I worked at Facebook and AI in 2018 um, for a year. It was incredible. It was really pretty special before AI was hot. <laughs> uh, then, yeah. I ended up getting, I ended up getting a divorce in uh, spring of 2019. My uh, ex-wife was living in Hawaii. So we, we had to do the divorce in Hawaii. COVID, there was no such thing as COVID yet. And so I went to were Facebook. You, were you in Hawaii too? Or was just, she, was just she it's, in Hawaii? It's a, it's a complicated Hawaii? story. Um, I don't know how deep we want to go into it, but I, we were living in Hawaii towards the end of our marriage to try to save it. She's from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And at the time she hit a pretty serious health issue. 
and she had to go to the hospital for a few months. And so when she hit that health issue, I took a job at Facebook to have the financial means to take care of her and my kids. And I, so I moved to Facebook with just me and my three kids and she was gone in the hospital. Okay. She was there for three months. When she got out, she was better, but she put some plane tickets on the table and said, you know, I almost fucking died. I'm not living in Silicon Valley. This is not me. I'm going home. I'm going to Hawaii where my dad is, my sister, my cousins. That's where I'm living out my days. And I'm taking the kids with me. And so I had to lie to Facebook. <sighs> and I worked at Facebook for another eight months. And I, and I moved into a spare bedroom uh, in an aunt I had. And I would figure out when the holiday, like when extra days would be. And I'd take an extra vacation day on one or two. And I would leave and go to Hawaii for four days. Uh, and then I would sneak back and I didn't tell anyone until, you know, after seven months of doing that, it's like, it's brutal. And, um, when I looked into the law, I had to be living in Hawaii to do, to be divorced. So I went to, I went to uh, Facebook. I'm like, can I work remotely? I know Zuck owns a bunch of land in Kauai. Like let's figure something out here. And this is again, pre pandemic philosophically. We want the teams solidified. And so I quit and I went back to Hawaii, got divorced and uh, ended up moving back to LA that, that summer of 2019. It was brutal, man. I think divorce will financially destroy you. You know, it did me, it sent me back at least 10 years. And I think the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life is the person you, you decide to partner with, you decide to marry. And it got me three amazing kids who are bonkers amazing my daughter has a podcast she's kind of tiktok famous she's at uc santa barbara she's hilarious and my other two kids wow. are equally amazing and so i have to give tar a lot of credit for that um and i also have to take some responsibility because i think that having a mormon marriage means you stick it out and i think i stuck it out too long I think there were periods where we probably should have sunsetted that relationship earlier than we should have. But mm -hmm. those are lessons. Each of us have to learn those lessons on our own, what our own personal boundaries are, what is important to us, how we show up for ourselves. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink or do anything or take any psychedelics until three years ago when I was 45 and 48 now. And that came on the tail end after I got divorced, had a crazy and me, I fell in love with this woman uh, just, you know, head over heels, helped her build her cosmetics company, um, took everything I knew about Silicon Valley and design is poured it into this brand. And, um, and we were together for a couple of years. And when that broke off, I was really broken. I was like, fuck, dude, I lost the marriage. I lost this person I cared about so much. I lost, you know, and so I went to Mexico into the jungles and did psychedelics which I didn't even know what those were. I went to this person. They handed me a fistful of pills, which were mushrooms, you know, all ground up. And I, and I just chopped right. them down and it was the most amazing heart opening, everything, forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness, gratitude, like every emotion that I couldn't, that I was void to me, a love of God, an, an understanding of God again, which I had totally divorced myself from. Um, just came flooding into me. And it, and from that point on, I said, I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to do. And I'm not going to do anything for money. 
and I came back and decided to be an artist full time. And I decided to put myself first, no matter what. So as we were talking about, I know we were talking about limiting beliefs before one of those things as a Mormon dad, as a Mormon man, is you serve other people, you serve your spouse, your kids and everybody else. And you put them all first. That is a powerful way to live. There's a lot of happiness that comes in serving others. There is a point though, where you end up not taking care of yourself, not, not. And so you end up empty inside. And, you know, it took me a long time to learn, learn that lesson. And, um, and so this is a roundabout way to say that's how I started painting full time and started doing art full time. And, um, this room you see behind me, the sound room is set up because I went and got trained in how to do this psychedelic facilitation. It's a combination of sound overtone emitting instruments. There's like, I have like 15 different instruments and people will come to my, come to me once a month. Uh, and I'll serve people psychedelics and play them sound and help them process whatever the heck they want to process. And we'll do it in small groups, five to 10 people. I've done it for over 200 people at this point, done it for the last two years. And, um, I don't do it for the money. I don't do it for anything. I just do it because of how much it helped me in a transitionary point when I didn't know where to turn to. Um, and I, you know, and so I don't know where you want to go with any of that information. Well, I've, yeah, a a billion (laughs) questions, but let's just start with, let's start with one of the first things that struck me. And that was that your wife is Tara. Did you say? Ex-wife. Yeah. Tara. Ex-wife is Tara. Ex-wife is Tara. And she put plane tickets on the table and she said, this is who I am. It's back there. Had you made a consideration yet about, well, what am, who am I? Like, had you thought? No, no, I wasn't. That's a great question, Brian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you, when you were confronted with that, how long did you fight it? I mean, we're, we're talking about 2019. So you were like, just about the time you had a, a chance to get your bearings, the world shut down. You were in Los Angeles, right? So that wasn't easy. You (laughs) had to, had to like hole up somewhere. Like what this, this period of 2020 had to be this like really deep, dark time. Yeah. I was sleeping on the couch. My, my brother, I had two brothers. They were living in, they were living in LA. They were living in Keanu Reeves's first apartment that he lived in when he was in LA, tiny shitty place. I slept on their couch um, and just started kind of putting the pieces together. It's, It's a really interesting question. No, I, even when she put those tickets down on the ground, I thought, okay, my duty as a father is to keep a good job, keep things stable and figure it out. I didn't, even contemplate divorce, to be honest with you, until the rigor of going to Facebook every day, going home, not seeing my kids, not seeing, not having a partner, being in this really kind of intense place. Um, I just, I don't know, I can only last seven or eight months. And then I was like, shoot, I'm not happy. Well, you you were forced to see that all of your energy was going into maintaining a life yeah, man. And I'll tell you, I'm bummed. I, I love that job. Those Facebook jobs are, they're great jobs, but like whatever people want to say on blind.com, you know, you guys are fucking entitled. Shut up. You have incredible jobs. You're making 250 K a yeah. year and you're getting another 200 K in stock and you're working for brilliant people. It's not perfect. Okay. Facebook is not perfect. Neither is Google. None of these places are perfect. But I'll tell you, 
you work in enough, you work in enough places long enough, and you realize that there are no perfect places. There's no perfect <laughs> you know, place. Like and out of eight, yeah, and and out of all the places you can work, they're they're not. You know, it's, I'm going to get a little grief for saying that. And um, you know, I've seen the social dilemma and all these different things, and worked with a lot of these people who go off and write articles about the hypocrisy of these platforms. And at the same time, there's a, there's incredible good that can be done there. There's incredible good that is done on Instagram and Facebook every single day and on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. I, I, I really hope that people that work in these environments can show up with a lot of gratitude and, and, and focus on the positive things and, and kind, of, kind of push things forward there. And I think it's unfortunately a byproduct of being a designer. You're kind of a critical eye on things. And the critical eye is too is easy, okay? It's easy to look at someone and isolate the aspects of them that are weak or look at a design and say what's bad about it. The art is saying the thing that no one is seeing and saying the positive and taking, taking what you're, is in front of you and making it a little bit better and doing it in a way that uplifts those around you and motivates those around you to continue forward on things. My... A uh, whole philosophy is as a creative director, I was always a perfectionist. Like I always wanted everything to be just so. Uh, but when you, when you start surrounding yourself with other talented people and, you know, your first instinct is to delegate, 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 you still kind of hold them to your own subjective standards in a lot of ways. They're working mm -hmm. to facilitate one of your ideas. They're working to bring something to life that you want them to bring to life. But it was really this realization, particularly with working with clients uh, at an agency that I realized like the real killer is when you get into a critique with a client that feels it is their job to close doors and, and tear stuff down. And as a manager and a director to creatives, I realized that I don't want to be that. I don't want to be this experience of the bad client relationship. What I want to be when I'm looking at work is someone who sees where it's moving and, and kind of keeps that momentum going. I want to keep it moving maybe even faster or in a better direction, but I, I don't want a review or a critique to feel like that creative is hitting a wall and all of their decisions and all of their instincts and all the love that they've put into this thing that they're making was just overlooked and unappreciated. So finding, finding these things like you're talking about that, excite people to keep going makes it so much easier for them to you know change the button color or add a drop shadow or something i mean the aesthetics kind of go away when you're able to connect with that developer or that designer on their purpose i like what you said it's what we're talking about is human to human technology you know it's human to human my software connecting with your software my computer linking up with your computer in a way that when I talk, my tone of voice, my body language, the emotion, you know, Brian, that I love you and I care about you and I am on your team and we're going to get this done together. And when people have a bunch of bugs in their software and they haven't, they haven't edited their own code and they're kind of a train wreck and you try to meld with that code as another human, it's chaotic. Your body rejects it. There is, there is so little. Yeah. And I think, you know, people are like, how can I be a better manager? How, how come I, how come I can, you know, work better with my clients, work on yourself. That's it. Self-work, 
Amen. Spend the time to uh, to look into your ju- why are you judging? What are you judging? Why are you judging? What's triggering you? Why are you getting upset? Why is your energy level a certain way? And kind of dive into that a little bit and update your software. The more you update your software, the better you're going to be at what, any of these tasks. Better parent. It's all the same. Like it's all the same. Being a better parent, being a better friend, being a better manager, being a better That's employee. Parent. It is, That's what I was going to say. It's all the same shit. It's all the same thing. It's amazing and, how much it's amazing how much there's a correlation with parenthood. Like the lessons, you know, anytime you're reading a good like parenting book and you're reading a good business book at the same business, time, yeah. it's amazing how much of those how many of those lessons overlap. Yeah. And how much your team or your kids are kind of a reflection of not just the good of you but the bad of you as well. You see yourself through the lens mm-hmm. either of them or a reflection of yourself through them and you it's, it's sometimes, you know, I, th- I really do feel like the experience of raising up in this industry, kind of climbing the ladder in this industry is one of intense, sometimes uncomfortable self-discovery. I mean, if, if you're not, if you're not willing to be confrontational with who you are and learn how to be diplomatically confrontational with the people that you work with, you really are going to stagnate in more ways than one. And, and, and with that, to add on to what you're saying, the, the way to do this, the way to get your way to make more money, to overcome imposter syndrome, all these things is to come from a place of self-love. I know that sounds so cheesy, man. I know it sounds like hippy dippy, but it's, I, I don't think it does. I think, I think that there's a, I think it's just the 3.0 movement that you're talking about. I 3.0, think that more people yeah. are realizing this. I think that I think that more people are realizing this. What was the what was the psychedelic experience like? Because you'd been through, you said you went south of the border. Where did you go? Yeah, I went to Mexico. Went to deep into Mexico, and um, I, I had been I had been talking with this woman for a few months and uh, trying to process the breakup I had. And I had been reading a couple books. Michael Pollan had a book that came out called How to Change Your Mind. Because in my mind, drugs, I was like Nancy Reaganified. So like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs, the fried egg. If you do psychedelics, you jump out of a window and you die. I had a lot of shame and guilt, you know, from being Mormon. Um, In Mormonism, your body is a temple. If you mess with it, God's mad at you. And, um, and so I did like sit with like, what, why do I want to do this? What am I searching for? Also realizing that psychedelics are not a panacea. They're not a magic pill that change everything. They're not going to solve your problems like overnight or anything. They do three things. Psychedelics do three things. Number one, they show you who you really are. Okay. Number two, they teach you how to surrender. And when I mean surrender, what I mean is surrender to the tension of life. So for example, if you can increase the gap between action and your reaction, just by a second or two, you're going to be a much more patient, kind, and loving person. Kids do something, they bug you, they smack your door while you're doing a podcast. One, 1,000. Hey, guys, I'd appreciate it if you want to have the sign on, you don't knock on the door. Versus that immediate reaction, right? The bigger the gap, the, 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 more, you're, the, the, the more time that you can have between response, the deeper you've gone to self. Okay. So first one is know who you are. Second one is surrender. But the third one is probably the most important is you see God and you see that God is yourself. So if you are God, 
whatever that means to you, by the way, you know, even if you're atheist, call it energy, whatever, then you are responsible for, for all of this. You're responsible for anything that, whatever happens to you, your reactions, how you talk, how you think, how you speak, you are responsible for that. Yeah. Things happen. Trauma is real. You know, um, there's terrible abuses and there's terrible things that happen in, in, to people that are very unfair. And what is also true is we must also then come from within as an individual sovereign person, pull whatever power we have inside of us to move forward in life. Depression is not caused by trauma, Brian. It's caused by loneliness. And loneliness is a byproduct of us isolating because we don't want to open ourselves up to other people because of the shame and the guilt and the things that we may feel. So specifically, we're talking about fatherhood or work or managing or having a boss that we hate. Increase our capacity to respond. Increase our awareness of our own divinity. And then I promise you, you'll have the strength. You'll, the words will come. You'll know how to do. You'll know how to deal with that situation. Other opportunities will present themselves. You know whether you believe in abundance or scarcity. You're right. Whether you believe there's plenty, tons of design jobs out there or not, you're right. Whether you believe you're worth a lot of money yeah. or not, you're right. And it's that real. It's that real. And so, psychedelics, in a sense, give you the clarity of that kind of thought so that when you are sitting and you are literally feeling love, the sun is like blasting on my face right now. The sun's a good metaphor. I, I can tell you. Yeah, about, I was going to say, I loved how the sun is like, 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 I can tell you how this feels. It feels warm. My skin's getting a little flush, but unless you're sitting here, you wouldn't know how this feels. I can tell you, but it's different. And so when you, when, when you feel that internal love, when you haven't had it for yourself in a long time, psychedelics kind of force that feeling upon you. And because you're able to feel it for a few hours, you're now able to model it and pattern after it and seek it. Does that make sense? An overwhelming <laughs> experience. Was this one of those where you were, you, you talk about letting go and surrendering. And uh, as I understand, there's a, there is sort of this, People are pretty dramatic in the way they describe that you have to go through. There's, there's a journey you have to go through. That's not necessarily comfortable sometimes, you know, this, as let me you say, approach, let me say uh, it this way. Yeah. Yeah. So, Brian, let me say it this way. There's, you speak three languages coming out of the, you know, when you're, when you're about two, you have three, you might, one of them is your language that we're using. We're using English. Okay. So there's a, there's a speech language that we all use. The other two that you have is the language of your eyes of sight in the language of your ears. What you hear in your ears tonally helps you understand if, the, if you're in danger or not, loud sounds, whatever. There's a lot of information that comes in through your ears. You're not able to control. You, you don't have eyelashes on your ears. You can't close them. They're just open. And, uh, and so you're constantly processing the auditory information. And, you know, music, that's why music is so universal. You don't have to speak you just do automatically. The other language of sight, colors, information, you know, you're seeing light reflect off my skin and off my body. That's the only reason you're seeing anything here. But that is also its own information, its own story. With psychedelics, you're getting this 
visual imagery that is so conceptual and and that is the only way to pack in so much information because I'm talking to you right now and I can only talk so fast. I can only give you so much information. Five senses and only so so much dimensionality you can pick up on, but there's so much beyond it. So when I have sound going, so that's why we do sound with the psychedelics. So we're doing the audio, the visual, everything. And you are just, you are literally opening up your meat computer and tapping in and upgrading your software in a way that you could do over a few years, but it's much faster this way. What were some, <laughs> do you mind talking about maybe some of the revelations that, that you came oh, to? Man. What were you taught? You know, it's um, some people believe there's like a spirit in the mushroom or there's grandmother ayahuasca or different things. And that, that may be true, may or may not be true. But you're, what I was taught was a, a conversation with my, my subconscious, specifically the understanding. <laughs> and it's just so simple. But just the understanding that I, I and my children and you and everyone around us are the same thing. We're all, we're all related. We're all connected. And I know that sounds like a little simple, sim- simple, but I actually felt that. So imagine laying in your bed at night and your, and your intention for this podcast is like Andrew Huberman level exposure. And you just want this like, you know, next level. And so you're sitting in bed and you start dreaming about this. You start thinking about this. And imagine a pulse of energy going out from your bedroom. Maybe it's 50 feet. Maybe it's a mile. Maybe it's a thousand miles because of the energy and the intention you're putting behind that. And you're like, I, I have a, I don't know. I think I'm charismatic and I have a good personality and I have a message to say, and I want to monetize this thing and provide for my family and just get wrapped up into it. And you start going there, there is, there is no limit to the size of your self-conscious. It can go over to China for all I know. It can touch someone over there right now. And that's why I think ideas are also alive. So if an idea falls on you and it falls, that's why we see apps all the time that look the same. We don't own the ideas. They land on our shoulders and they whisk and they sit with us and they say, Hey, Brian, are you going to do this podcast or not? If you hadn't done this, I promise you there would have been another one, like same format, same general idea. Cause it landed on you and it said, Brian, I want you to channel this and get it out there. Art is the same way. Design is the same way. And that's why it's very important if you're a person that is open to these kinds of things to, to be a maker, to become a, per, to become a channel. Okay. It is it, that, and this is another thing psychedelics teach is that you are a channel for energy and information and ideas and, uh, and to open that up and get out of the way, get out of the way. The idea is alive. It wants to come through you and it wants to do its thing. Your podcast is already written. Your next 500 stars or whoever's coming on, how it's going to work, the sponsorship, whatnot. I don't know. Maybe you're going to be making $10 million a year from this. I don't fucking know. But the idea does and it's already going. And so as long as you can get out of the way and stay open to that, it'll work out. I'm going to tell you something really crazy, Brian. I'm going to yeah. tell you something really crazy. Mark. I made a million dollars a year last year on art, which doesn't make any sense. Which doesn't make any sense. I was going to ask you. Do you know how that happened? I was ask you. 
It did not happen through my, it did not happen through my choice. It did not happen through my choice and it did not happen through my oil painting. The way I thought it would work is I'd paint oceans and if I, and I would just paint more of them and I would charge more money and they would get in value and keep going. And the ocean paintings are a huge passion of mine and I love doing it. About three years ago, yeah, right when I started about six months into it, I had this idea. And I went to New York and I graffitied a ton of walls, like 50 of them. I went for like a week and I made this character and I painted it everywhere and I wheat pasted it everywhere. I hired four guys and we wheat pasted all over New York city and I birthed this character. It's anonymous. No one knows it's me. And at the same time, this crypto NFT weird thing popped out of nowhere, popped out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this. And somehow all the timing worked out and I was able to use this character and produce more art and, and provide for my family in a way that I would have never imagined ever. I can't repeat that. I did not do that this year. That was a one-time, a one, a one-time thing with the emergence of crypto, but it taught me to really, really believe and trust in the universe because you have no idea how things are going to happen. You don't know if tomorrow someone from Spotify is going to pick up your thing and be like, Hey, Brian, we, we love you. We need you write a book, blah, blah, blah. You're one moment away from anything amazing happening to you, you know? And now this year was not like last year. This year was way less money than last year because crypto crashed. And so now trust, just trust, keep making art, keep going there. Something will happen and don't give up. What did I tell you? And look, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Be sure to tune in in the coming weeks when I share part two of our conversation. And in the meantime, do me a favor and subscribe to this channel. Whether it's on YouTube, Spotify, or iTunes, subscribing to The Creative Brief broadens the reach of this podcast and helps me produce more episodes. Lots more coming up every Monday. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. I'm Brian Athey, and I'll see you next time.